Father, thank you for the many ways in which this church is serving you. I thank you, Father, for the encouragement it is to a pastor and to to the elders and all those here that we can see our meager efforts, our small size, our, our weakness, as the world would count strength and weakness, still being used to glorify your name. And we ask, Father, that what we have done will please you, what we may do in the future will please you, that you can use it to great purpose in the building of your kingdom. We pray that our our own hearts, our own desires would not take us away from the work that you've laid in front of us. That we would not choose the things of this world over the things of the kingdom. That we would not seek for those things that make us feel good rather than the things that glorify your name. I pray, Father, that we would have the strength and maturity to put you ahead of those things that might distract us. And I ask that, Father, knowing that our time is limited, our resources are limited, and our opportunities are limited, and we want to make the most of what you have given us to do as we await the day we will face Christ. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, for the teaching that it is and can be to our hearts, but also, Father, for the example it sets and the way you work within the lives of your people. It gives us confidence to know you work in our lives as well. And we ask, Father, that you would show us through this word this morning how you intend to work with us, how you call us and strengthen us for that work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you open up your Old Testament, you'd find the prophets telling an intriguing story about Israel. They told of a day when Israel would behold their Messiah face to face, But the people for whom that Messiah was sent would reject him. And the prophets say that they would persecute him, they would betray him, and they would put him to death. And then the prophets tell us that for a time in the history of the nation of Israel, they would be judged by God for that betrayal of Christ by being set aside in God's program of salvation. That during this time of hardening, Paul calls it, the Messiah's offer of the kingdom would no longer be directed at the Jews, but for the most part would be directed toward the Gentile world instead. And the Messiah would rule over the hearts of those Gentile followers, bringing blessing to that foreign people. And that blessing for the Gentiles would ultimately be something God uses to provoke jealousy in the hearts of the Jewish people who rejected Messiah. But the story the Old Testament prophets tell doesn't end there. There's a third act, if you will, to this story of Israel. The Lord being faithful, even when his people are faithless, he says that there will be a day to come in which the Lord brings great trial, great stress upon the world. And in the midst of that trial and tribulation, the people of Israel, this unbelieving, hardened Israel, will be stirred to call upon the very name of the Messiah whom their fathers killed in that time in the past. This Messiah, this one that they assumed was dead and gone 2,000 years earlier, will return to them because of their call out for him. And in his return, he will bring relief to them from their tribulation. Now, that's the story that the Bible teaches in the Old Testament primarily about Israel and their relationship with their Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's a story that has yet to play out entirely, as you just heard. That last part, the third act, is still waiting. We're living in the midst of the second part of that three-part story. We're in that time when Israel has been hardened, 
And the message of the gospel is going out to the Gentiles instead. So the world still waits for that third act to begin. Now, did you know that this storyline I just gave you of Christ and Israel, that storyline is pictured in the story of Joseph and his brothers. Think what we've already covered. Joseph was persecuted and rejected by his own brothers who are the sons of Israel. He was then sold into slavery, and from the point of view of his brothers, he's assumed to be dead. You'll see that in our text today as we look in chapter 42. Meanwhile, while they have despised and rejected their brother, he, meanwhile, rises to a position of power and blessing over a Gentile people, the people of Egypt. He has a Gentile bride, we learned. He has a Gentile following, and that Gentile following is calling him Lord. He is dispensing bread of life to those who would call upon his name. And the people of the nations of the world are streaming to him in Egypt, seeking for him, for Joseph. So just like our world today that I recounted a minute ago, just like that story, In the story of Joseph, we are now in the middle of the second act of the story. We're in the part of the story in which Joseph is serving a Gentile people while his own family have rejected him and consider him lost. And now we're ready in the story of Joseph to begin act three. From this point forward in the story of Joseph, we're learning a story that is picturing the future for us. Things that have yet to happen but are promised To happen for Israel. What is now about to take place in the story of Joseph is a period of stress and trial and tribulation, a worldwide famine in this case, one that is so severe that even prosperous, blessed Jacob finds himself forced to seek support from Egypt. And in the process of Jacob and his family going to Egypt, the Lord will be working in Joseph's brothers to bring about the very good thing that he has purposed from the beginning through this experience. So that is the backdrop of chapter 42 and all the way into chapter 45. We are studying Act 3, as I call it, of God's plan for the nation of Israel and their Messiah, as pictured in this story of Joseph and his brothers. Read with me in chapter 42, verses 1 through 5. Now, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his brothers... Why are you staring at one another? He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Also, so as the land withers and the crops die out of this famine, Jacob and his family have found themselves searching for options, just like everyone else in this time. And apparently the brothers of Joseph, the sons of Jacob, had become idle, it would seem, staring at one another, as he says, because the famine has left the ground unworkable, unprofitable. There's nothing much to do when you can't work the ground. And then finally, Father Jacob chastises his sons for sitting on their hands while the family stands by and starves during this period of time. He asks, what do you sit around staring at one another for? 
Doesn't that sound like something a dad would say to his sons, right? Of course he does. Now, I've often wondered why the brothers had not proposed this solution themselves. If dad has heard that there is food in Egypt, I can assure you everyone would have heard that there is food in Egypt. If there is a famine going on at the first opportunity to find relief, everyone would have gone after it. So why are these brothers doing nothing? Well, could it be that they had no desire to walk in the footsteps of their brother Joseph? Were they worried of how they might have felt had they gone down into the very country where they sent their brothers so many years ago? Do you wonder if maybe their guilt played on their judgment in this case? I wonder. Well, in any event, since the sons had no plans of their own, dad gives them a plan. He says, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Why don't you all go down there and buy us some before we die? And then the trial of the famine is working as God intended. It does suggest that this famine was severe enough that had they not gone, they would have, in fact, starved to death. And I think that's exactly in keeping with God's purposes. As I said in the introduction, the famine in our story is a picture of the coming stress that the Lord will bring upon the entire world, we are told. And he brings it for the sake of Israel, Scripture tells us. The coming future time of stress is called by various names in the Old Testament, but its most common name in the New Testament is tribulation, or sometimes even the great tribulation. Tribulation will be a period on earth in which you will see unprecedented worldwide calamity, according to Scripture, and that calamity is designed by God to be so very terrible for a good reason, to cause Israel to seek for their savior, someone who will bring them relief from this persecution and the war and the trials that will come upon that people. It comes not only upon Israel, but upon the whole world. Yes, but its focus is Israel. Jesus described this period to his disciples in Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. He said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The nation of Israel, in Jesus' context here, the nation of Israel are the elect that he's talking about. If it were not for the shortening, or another way to say it would be the concluding of those times of stress and trial, if it didn't get put to its appointed end, it would have eventually killed even Israel. Just as is in our story, if they had not sought relief from Egypt, yes, the famine was bad enough to kill Israel and his sons. So he sends his sons to buy grain in Egypt. But interestingly, Jacob holds one of his sons back. Benjamin, we're told, isn't allowed to travel with his brothers. Why? Because his dad says, well, something bad might happen to him. What do you think if you're one of the other ten when you hear that? What about something bad happening to me, dad? Well, having lost Joseph, we know already Jacob is not about to lose the only other son that his beloved Rachel had given to him. And that fact proves that Jacob's tendency to show favoritism has certainly not waned. It's still present. And you have to assume it still creates some animosity for the other brothers. And his decision to withhold Benjamin is important because it adds two important details to our picture of Israel in tribulation. First, removing Benjamin reduces the number of brothers who go into Egypt to ten. The number ten 
is important. The number 10 is an interesting number in Scripture. It carries the meaning of a witness or a testimony. So the 10 brothers travel into Egypt as a witness or as a testimony of God's work in his people and among his people. The movement of these men into Egypt and their eventual encounter with Joseph is a testimony to the work of God, his might, his wisdom, his sovereignty over the lives of his people. Secondly, the removal of Benjamin from the family, from the number of the brothers, will literally make it impossible for the other brothers to be reconciled to Joseph in his absence. Without all of the sons of Israel present at exactly the same time, Joseph cannot reconcile with his family. And the absence of Benjamin will then become a tool that Joseph's going to use to actually prompt that reconciliation, as we're going to study in the story. Now, there is a picture there that I am purposely not revealing to you at this point, a picture of why it is that all of the brothers must be present before Joseph reveals himself. This picture that will form out of that detail we'll find later. It's a stunning, perfect picture of the last days of tribulation. And we'll see that when we get through chapters 43 to 45. So we'll hold that thought. For now, let's move on. The brothers join in the crowds that are flocking to Egypt for food. So we pick up there in verse six. Now, Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Well, now we enter into easily one of the most remarkable stories in all human history. And I think it's so remarkable because it is a foreshadowing of literally the most important and intriguing story that will ever occur in this age. That is of how God brings Israel back to himself in the face of Christ. There will be no more important story in all of human history. When all is written and we are in the kingdom, the thing we will think most about is how God was faithful to his promises in Israel and how he brought all things back to himself in the end through that people. That will be the story we can't stop thinking about, I can assure you. And so I think this story is so compelling, so almost unbelievable, because it is such a perfect picture of that greater truth in this moment the tables have turned for joseph and his brothers joseph now is in the position of ruling over his brothers just as he dreamed by the way and joseph stands over his brothers he sees them come in and they are no doubt bowing to him as everyone would have done if they came to joseph for food what can you imagine must have gone on in his mind what thoughts must have flooded into his mind? For example, which of us would not have been tempted in such a moment to bring revenge upon your brothers as they stand there completely subject to your authority, knowing what they did to you some 20 years earlier? Or perhaps you might have been more generous than some others and you might have simply revealed yourself to them immediately and have told them, I'm Joseph. Look, it all worked out OK. I've forgiven you. But Joseph chooses to do neither. Joseph holds back. Now, why don't they recognize Joseph? I mean, he recognized them. First of all, Joseph was a lot younger 
the last time these brothers remember him. He's 20 years older. He was only 16 the last time they saw him. And they probably haven't changed as much in the 20 years as he would have coming from a 16-year-old. Secondly, and more importantly, Joseph's appearance would have been highly altered by his position of authority in Egypt. He would have been totally shaved. He would have been wearing the traditional face and eye makeup that Egyptians are often portrayed with in the depictions you've seen from Egypt. And then his brothers, Joseph's brothers, would not have had the opportunity as they come into that room to spend a lot of time studying his features. They would have come in and been on their faces almost immediately. They just see what looks like another typical Egyptian standing there, and they're down staring at the ground the rest of the time. Thirdly, Joseph would not have been called by his name. He would have been called by his title, or at best, by his Egyptian name. Finally, in verse 23, we learn that Joseph spoke through an interpreter. He didn't even speak Hebrew. He spoke Egyptian, which would have further obscured him from their point of view. So Joseph has this upper hand. He has this moment in which he knows them. They don't know him. And he wisely restrains himself so he can play his cards carefully. Now, you can safely assume, I think it's safe to assume based on who we know Joseph to be, that he would like to have reconciled with his brothers. That he's not holding back here out of any sense of revenge. He's doing it, though, for good purposes. What are those good purposes? Well, what does reconciliation look like for Joseph under these circumstances? Ask yourself that. If Joseph had revealed himself to them as he stood there in that moment as prime minister, what kind of reaction do you think you would have seen from those brothers? Well, you know the brothers would have expressed sorrow. But what kind of sorrow would it have been? They're standing before someone who has the power of life and death over them now, a band that they sold into slavery 20 years earlier. What kind of reaction do you think they're going to have? We're so sorry. We're so, so sorry. We are so, so, so sorry. If we had only known this moment was coming, we would never have done that. Right? Is there any mystery in this? They would have to have done that. So regardless of their true heart, they were going to say they were sorry. Regardless of what they really felt about Joseph, they were going to do their best to make amends with him, weren't they? And if they hadn't truly repented of their past hatred and of their rejection of Joseph, then any relationship that could form from this moment forward would have been a meaningless relationship. It would have been a relationship based on his position of power, not on any true heartfelt love they might have had for their brother. True loving relationships are only possible if you demonstrate true sorrow for past indiscretions. Unless there's a true change in perspective from these sons, there's not going to be the kind of reconciliation Joseph wants. So the only way Joseph's ever going to truly know his brother's real feelings concerning him will be if he can find a way to search their hearts before he reveals his identity. Well, that's not easy to do. How do you, as Pharaoh's prime minister, stand before men who you pretend you don't know and ask them about your brother Joseph? who you sold into slavery. It doesn't come easily without them feeling threatened by it. It has to be evoked out of them without them knowing who you really are. So he remains veiled. He remains unrecognized. But in the meantime, Joseph begins to take action to bring about a plan that is going to bring increasing pressure on these boys, on these sons, until they confess their past sins. Once they've confessed their past sins, then Joseph will reveal himself. This is also a perfect picture of how the Messiah will bring Israel back to himself in the times of tribulation. We are also going to wait to develop that further when we get to that part of the story. 
But for now, we know that's where we're headed. Now, notice Benjamin is missing and Joseph notices Benjamin is missing in our next section. And so he has to quickly surmise for himself why Benjamin is absent and then turn that to his advantage in his effort to test his brothers. Look what he does in verse nine. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had had about them and said to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Then they said to him, no, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, he remembers at the start of this passage, we note he remembers his vision. He remembers the dreams that God has given him. What a great example of God's sovereignty, by the way. And I'm only the last in a long line of men who have made note of this. Here you have the brother's decision to place Joseph in Egypt, which was intended to stop him from ruling over the family, of course. That decision was the way by which God made possible the fulfillment of the very dream they were trying to stop. Right. It's just a classic moment of irony. But it's such a great demonstration of God's sovereignty. You might ask, well, what would have happened had the brothers never taken that step to sell Joseph into slavery? Would that have then prevented God from allowing Joseph to rule over them? But if you ask that question, it completely misses the point. Because the point is not how it happened. The point is that no matter what the brothers did, God was going to get what he said was going to happen. It turned out this way because of what they did. Had they not done it, I can assure you it would have happened some other way. One way or another, God gets his way. That's the point. And even when his enemies, even when God's enemies strive against him, they only succeed in the end in confirming God's plan. You know a better example than even this one? Judas. The enemy, Satan, indwelled Judas precisely because his intent was to betray Christ and have him put to death, thus ending Christ's ability to rule over Satan and conquer him as promised. And yet, because of what Judas did, Christ won the battle over the grave and has assured Satan that he will be destroyed. What Satan was doing to hurt Christ only hurt himself. And this is just another example. God gets exactly what God wants. So now Joseph sees God's purpose. As he remembers the dream, he puts it all together in a flash. He understood that the dream was a sign. He would have the birthright. He would have the right to rule over this family. And here it is now in this moment, the chance for him to see that dream play out. He is standing as literally patriarch of the family, though he hasn't revealed it yet. And now Joseph has determined that if he is going to act as patriarch over this family, he must be reconciled. To this family or else he can never be the patriarch. So as every action is every thought and as every word from this point forward in the story is directed toward that outcome. Reconciling, not in some superficial way, not like we said a moment ago where he stands in the room and he says, I'm Joseph, I'm in charge. You have to do what I say. That's not reconciliation. What he wants is his friendship and his love with his brothers to be the thing that unites them from which then 
he can rule them as patriarch. So Joseph accuses them of being spies. You've come into the land just to learn how to defeat us. Now, that's actually a plausible claim because they identified themselves as from Canaan. And the Egyptians and the Canaanites were long-standing enemies. They had fought numerous battles over history up to this point. Each had conquered the other at some point in the past. At this stage of history, Egypt was conquering and ruling over Canaan. So at any moment, the fear was that your enemy was going to find a way to turn the tables and come in and conquer you. So when they say they're from Canaan, it's not an unreasonable thing for Joseph to say, you're here to spy on us. So he takes advantage of that opportunity. His accusation causes them great fear. Well, there's no surprise there. You stand before the most powerful man on earth and he's mad at you. That's a bad moment. They say, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. We're just members of one family. What they're saying is this. We are not Canaanites. We're really just one little tribe, one family, all from the same father. We just happen to live in Canaan. We're not actually Canaanites. We're not your enemy. But Joseph says, wait a minute. If that's true, I'll test you to that effect. The test is you said you're one of 11, but I only see 10. Go get the 11th and prove to me that you weren't lying. That's the test. Now, what Joseph really wants, of course, is he wants them to produce that younger brother so that he can work with all the sons in reconciliation. And then to ramp up the pressure on them a little more, he puts them all in prison for three days. This is I love this because I wonder if what he's really trying to do here is just say, you want to know what this feels like? Let me show you what this feels like. You're going to feel at least a little bit of that. I'm sure he had better reasons than doing that. He's just, I think, increasing this fear, increasing the chance for repentance to take hold in their hearts. But maybe a little bit of him was smiling as he saw him dragged off. Now, the thing is, while they sit in prison, they don't know it's only three days. They don't know how long they're going to be there. He didn't say three days. He just put them in prison for three days. So their own imaginations, while they sit in the cells, produce a far greater punishment than anything Joseph could probably have said to them. Because for all they know, they're there forever. And then for three days, they languish. Now, you might ask yourself, well, is this is this cruel? I mean, I understand why he has to hide his his identity. That makes some sense. But does he really have to go so overboard? I mean, being harsh with them, the scripture said, throwing him in jail now. Some in the world today might look at this harsh treatment and say he's, he's taking advantage of his position. He's being unfair, unkind. But, you know, if you think that about this situation, you're falling into the mindset of the world in which the culture has lost any sense or any understanding of discipline And the consequences for sin. It's a good thing when the Lord visits our sins back upon us as a means of producing repentance. And in order to help us stop sinning in the future. That's a good thing. Unfortunately, in the world, it's often perceived as such a negative thing. We do everything we can to avoid the consequences of our mistakes. The question is, will we accept the Lord's chastisement when it comes or will we run from it? Will we take steps to reduce the pain, to buffer the trial that God is bringing into our life because he wants to correct our behavior and advance our state of maturity in Christ? The culture we live in would look upon Joseph as cruel and unfair as opposed to in the way the scriptures look upon it as the right thing to do if the intent is to bring the sins of those brothers upon them so that they might repent of those sins and change their view, change their life as a result. In our culture, though, there is a tremendous effort applied to remove any pain or any inconvenience associated with 
our own sins. There's always a pill. There's always an excuse. There's always an exception. There's always a special case for everyone, it would seem, under every circumstance where sin has brought some negative consequence into our lives. And if that is the pattern, where is there room for repentance? Where is the room for spiritual growth? There isn't any under those circumstances. Christ does the same thing with his children, and he is intent on bringing repentance here to this family as well. The old saying, they say there's no atheists in foxholes. I don't know that that's literally true, but the sense of it is correct. The sense of it is God often brings repentance best in the midst of trials and difficulties because When people reach to the end of themselves, when they have no options and hope and rescue from anything in the world, then only, sometimes, will they turn to God and listen. Paul says it best, Romans 2, 4. He says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? If you're going to interpret that verse properly, then you can't interpret kindness to mean good things happening to you. You have to interpret it like we used to say as parents to our kids. As I spank you, this hurts me more than it hurts you. But I do it because it's the right thing to do. The kindness of God is the fact that He will chastise us, that He will bring consequences back upon us, that He will let us feel something of suffering as a result of our mistakes because that kindness leads us to repentance. Next week, we're going to watch Joseph advance his plan a little further, leading his brothers closer and closer to that eventual reconciliation. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you give us examples that counter the world's teaching. We live in this world, Father, because that's where you ask us to be until the day comes that we're taken home. And while we're here, we are in the world, but we're called to not be of it, to not be one who shares in its views, to share in its beliefs, to share in its values to not model our lives and our choices on what the world would do under the same circumstances. And so, knowing that call, knowing that that is our purpose, I thank you for the reminder, Father, that we are to accept the consequences that come for our actions, for our mistakes, but then learn through them, turning them to good in in the way they grow us in Christ. Help us stand, Father, in the face of chastisement. Strengthen us for what it may bring, but also, Father, give us the courage not to deaden it, Not to run from it. Because we know, Father, as we run from those opportunities, we just ensure that they'll have to come again in the future. Let us deal with them once and then for all. And move on in our growth and be ready, Father, to face the next trial, stronger than the last. I thank you, Father, for a place in which your word is held up. The spirit is heard and followed and Christ rules in our hearts. And I pray, Father, we could share what we have with many others. We don't want to leave it only for ourselves, for we know its message is one that goes out to the world, and we want to share it with as many as you let us. Thank you for giving us the strength to serve in the ways we do and a hope and a desire to do better. And may we come back next week, Father, ready to learn more. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.